I, I tell my students to think about, about the colonial period as a series of floating hotels for insects that were crossing the Atlantic to establish here in North America. You are listening to Welcome back to another episode of the Urban Wildlife Podcast, and I am one of your co-hosts, Billy Brown. And I'm Tony Crosdale. And we're here with... Ken Frank. Uh, on this episode, we are looking at a theme of the oldest of urban wildlife and some of the newest urban wildlife. To start, though, we invited as our guest host, Ken Frank. In 2015, Ken published the book I Had Always Wanted to Write, <laughs> The Ecology of Center City, Philadelphia, which uh, is the kind of thing, once I got my hands on it, I didn't really put it down much. And uh, I guess we start off we by... We still haven't put it down much. Um, on, on, the, on the podcast, we, we like to talk about synanthropic organisms, about plants and animals that live in the places that we create and do so as if it's their natural habitat. And this book is full of those. And so I kept going through it and saying, oh, we got to talk about that. We gotta talk about bridge spiders. We gotta talk about mantises. We gotta talk about ferns and penny pennyweed. Is that another one? Pennywort. Pennywort. All these examples of plants and animals that live around us and live with us, and sort of how they fit into Philadelphia, but also the sort of great sort of historical approach to it. Um, so I just want to hear, like, what got you interested in writing a book about the ecology of Center City, Philadelphia? Well, I find doing natural history in the city, especially Philadelphia, is exciting. Because it's right here. It's right outside of my front door. I don't have to get in a car. don't have to go anywhere. And it's relatively not studied by others. People who are interested in natural history like to go in the country or go to the jungle or go to Costa Rica. But you can go right into a city and learn things that haven't really been uh, explored in detail by professional biologists. And then there's Philadelphia, which has, is the greatest place in North America to do urban natural history because we have a record. And, you know, your interest is in sort of archaeological natural history from cities from long ago. Well, there's no better place in Philadelphia because we have the data, we have the, the research, the observations going back as far back as records were kept in this country. Yeah. So this is the ideal place to do the kind of work that you are interested in. Yeah. So, real quick, where do you live? I live near Fittler Square, which is... Uh, Describe what the landscape is like. Uh, it's, row, <laughs> it's, uh, it's row houses in a neighborhood that abuts the center of town with its skyscrapers and its uh, fancy restaurants. And there's not a single forest you know, in the center city area where I live. For people who want a cultural reference, if I'm not mistaken, it is the neighborhood that the Sixth Sense was filmed in. Bruce Willis's house in Sixth Sense is in Fiddler Square, or like right in that area. That is correct. It pretty much doesn't get more urban than where you live, unless you live in an office building, you know. <laughs> I, gotta, I think of you as a bug guy. Um, That's true. But you're also part of the, the botanical. Yes. So... Talk a little bit about, like, you know, when you're, what are the things you notice first? What do you, what do you get out and what do you look at? Yeah. Well, I, I'm fascinated by what grows in sidewalk cracks. And, you know, a sidewalk crack is literally a niche. 
in, in both senses of the word, yeah. an ecological niche, and it's a little niche in it. It just fascinates me. It collects water. Uh, so if you have a slab of concrete and there's a little rain, that little crack is going to get more water just because the concrete doesn't absorb. It goes right in there. And then you have these plants that are superbly adapted to these cracks and have been with us for a long time. Oh, and if people want to find the book, how can they? The book is available as a free download. And the easiest way would is to just go to the website of the publisher, which is called Fittler Square Press, one word. Yeah. And if you look around that website, you'll find the links. And we'll link to the website. Yeah. Um, you'll find the links to download the book for free. It's also available in print form, but it's expensive because each copy is printed uh, on demand. But worth it. <laughs> <laughs> in this episode, we're looking at some of the oldest of animals that live with us. You had brought up the example of honeybees. Yes. Well, just a few months ago, a paper was published in Nature that looked at the biochemical signatures for beeswax on pottery and found evidence of beeswax and pottery 8,500 years old in multiple places in North Africa, the Middle East, and Europe. This is the oldest confirmed evidence for our relationship with honeybees. Now there are cave drawings in Spain going back 6,000 years. The Egyptians have hieroglyphics of, you know, they probably raised honeybees. And honeybees come up in Sumerian texts. But this is 8,500 years. That's the very beginning of agriculture. But the amazing thing about honeybees is that they are exotic. So that the Indians didn't have honeybees. Yeah. The Native American Indians didn't have honeybees. So honeybees were brought into North America and rapidly naturalized. So that in sixteen in sixteen eighty two when William Penn came to Pennsylvania. And my family. What's that? My family came with William Penn. Okay. <laughs> you know, and, and the earliest Crowsdales. <laughs> there were probably honeybees already by that time introduced. But by the Swedes and by Yes. Okay. Yes. And by they're the first record we have in Philadelphia of honeybees uh, was by a guy who lived here from 1681 to, I think, about 1693 or so, named Gabriel Thomas, who said you could buy honey in downtown Philly then for five pence a pound. And then what happened, you know, we're here, as I speak, we're in West Philly, but the salient event in the history of our relationship to honeybees, which goes back thousands of years, yeah. took place in 1852 here in West Philadelphia, maybe a mile or two from where we are now. And a guy named Lorenzo Longstrath, a Congregationalist minister born in Philadelphia, invented the removable frame hive. That completely revolutionized beekeeping. It changed our relationship to pollinators and honeybees forever and in the end has had a devastating impact on honeybees 
and pollinators. What do you mean? Before him, beehives, in order to harvest honey, you had to destroy the hive. You had to basically go in there, scoop it out. But with this, you could just pull up a frame and harvest the honey without destroying the hive. So what Langstroth's invention did is it opened up beekeeping to industrialization. And now you could stack beehives, put them on semis, carry them around the country, use them as, use them for their pollinator services. So what happened? Langstroth was always questing for the ideal queen. He was always trying to import queens. So he started this commerce in bees. Diseases from Asia, from Asian honeybees, switched to our honeybees. We brought them back, and then in this industrial, concentrated way, we disseminated these diseases all over the world, all over the country. Gotcha. And what's happened is we have wiped out our wild honeybees. You would ask me, what about managed versus wild? There are no wild honeybees in our area. They have been wiped out. So we're saying, so, so if we go back... If we go back to Langstroth's time, would we have found both, let's say, honeybees in hives that had been built for them, as well as honeybees in hollow trees and sort of, let's say, feral honeybees? Exactly. Okay. Yes, yes. In fact, until the 1990s, wild honeybees were abundant in the woods. They were everywhere. Synanthropic organism. This is another idea I got from Tristan Donovan's Feral Cities book. Um, and in that book, he got the idea from talking with Rob Dunn at North Carolina State University. Rob's talking about uh, the river crabs of Rome, described in a paper by Massimiliano Scalisi um, and some other, peop- other authors, <laughs> about a population of river crabs isolated by the city of Rome. River crabs are what they sound like, crabs that live in rivers. Um, in this species, they live around Italy, Greece, and other countries on the Adriatic coast. Um, now, these particular crabs appear to be living in little drainage canals off of Rome's Cloaca Maxima, which is the great sewer system um, whose construction was begun in pre-Republic times. Um, so this is really old. It's unclear whether they naturally occurred in that watershed or if they were transplanted there before Rome was built up. But the general idea is that these crabs have been isolated by the city around them for something like two and a half millennia. Um, so it's like over 2,500 years, it looks like. Um, if you think of when, uh, either when the pre-Roman introduction would have been or when um, the Caleca Maxima would have been, would have started to have been isolated from other waterways um, or the streams that flow into it would have been isolated. Um, the run population of these river crabs, uh, as you might expect from a long time of isolation, um, is apparently distinct. These crabs grow more slowly, they get bigger, um, and their breeding season has become offset from their nearest neighboring populations, um, meaning that they wouldn't be able to mate with other river crabs even if they were in contact with them. Um, so this is a um, this is this is isolation not just geographically, physically, um, but also behaviorally. And so, if you're a biologist, when someone says Cloaca maxima to you, you think of what do you think of when you say cloaca maxima, Tony? <laughs> I think of uh, well, cloaca is the all-purpose hole on uh, birds and reptiles and exactly and fish, right? And yeah, it's, it means sewer, I guess, in Latin. Yeah. Well, it 
also raises in my mind, you know, how many other animals live in subterranean bodies of water? Critters haven't evolved to live in there yet. They may. They may, I know. if, If cities persist as we know it for, you know, hundreds of thousands of years, then yes, there will absolutely be endemic species. Like, the cities will be islands, effectively. Just like you have, like, a, a mountaintop that, you know, is basically an island. You have that mixed species up there. You know, and you have, you, have, you do have cave salamanders throughout the world and, you know, endemic to a really small cave system. Well, there's no, well each city's sewer system could be its own cave system. I think with that, we'll lead into the, an interview we recorded. And so this was something that came up in a discussion that we're going to look at in a, uh, it's in a future episode about a research project into Boston's Harbor Islands. And so there's a national park, um, small national park, but the islands around Boston's Harbor um, are a national park. Um, and they were doing a, a biological sort of inventory project. And what they're looking at a lot were the insects um, or invertebrates that live in the, these harbor islands. And the person I was talking to mentioned some help they had gotten from an archaeoentomologist. <laughs> and I said, what? And so that one thing led to another. And I absolutely had to talk to Allison Bain. Uh, good morning. My name is Allison Bain. I'm an environmental archaeologist. I work in Quebec City, Canada at Université Laval. Uh, my specialty is studying past environments on and around archaeological sites, and my particular special specialization is the study of archaeoentomology or preserved insect r- remains that we find on sites or in, in samples near archaeological sites. My research actually focuses on from about 1000 AD to about 1900, and uh, on a site where there's good organic preservation, whether in sealed organic layers uh, or uh, submerged layers, we get all sorts of different insects. We'll get flies, uh, beetle remains, uh, lepidoptera, hymenoptera, all sorts of different groups of insects. But uh, archaeoentomology focuses primarily on coleoptera or beetles. The majority of researchers work on that, uh, on that particular order. And beetles are interesting because beetles are, um, a lot of them are, are pretty big and they have big in the insect term of big, for, uh, particularly in North America. And they have uh, characters on them that make them visually identifiable. So it was that particular characteristic uh, that meant that a lot of people started collecting them from the 1800s. So, so from a very, and even the 1700s. So from a very practical point of view, there's large collections all over North America that are fairly well identified. So a lot of people have worked on them. And they're uh, the exoskeletons. So we work primarily with the TED, the head, sorry, the head. <laughs> I work in French, so I mix up sometimes my, my languages. Uh, work on the head, we work on the pronotum or the thorax part, and we work on the elytra, the external wings. And they're made of, ke- of chitin, which is like the material in our nails. So that's the material that preserves quite well in lots of different conditions on archaeological sites. And those are the body parts we primarily work with. Okay. And so I guess the, the next question is, it seems like an arcane little corner of archaeology. So why study um, the remains of beetles uh, at all? What's the point? Well, it's interesting because they tell us all the, the interesting little secrets that, that, that are hidden. That's what one of the great things about archaeology is that uh, written sources, text sources, probate inventories can tell us all sorts of information. But we always say that the bugs don't lie. 
And so in the, uh, they can tell us about uh, a lot about uh, local environments around archeological sites. Sometimes that's a really, really important question that we can't otherwise understand unless looking at environmental data. Insects, uh, as you probably know, are extremely tied to their ecological niches. So if there is a colder period or a warmer period or a wetter, peri a wetter period near a site, the insect fauna is gonna change. So if we have extremely well-dated uh, layers near or on the archeological site, that'll tell us, uh, that'll actually tell us a little bit about, well, how do people react to those changes? In their houses, we can actually look at how people, particularly in colonial period sites in uh, Northeastern North America, I've done a fair bit of research on what people were eating and we can find out that people had uh, perhaps lots of crunchy insect bits in their diet. There was uh, infested green stores. They had, they had head lice, they had bed bugs, they had all the, the little bits that no one likes to think about. But they do tell us a lot about sort of the daily life of people. So the, perhaps the quality of their food, what their environment was like. Years ago, uh, quite, quite a while ago now actually, I, I worked on a project that was connected uh, to the, the big dig in the Boston area. And we excavated, uh, I didn't excavate, but a, a colonial privy or essentially, you know, bathroom garbage dump was, was excavated. And it was very interesting because it's unusual to find something, you know, intact, preserved from the colonial time period. And so the archaeologists took all sorts of uh, samples for environmental remains. So we, in parallel, studied pollen, parasites, seeds, bones, as well as all the, the artifact remains. And it was kind of interesting because I, that's when I started to learn that you often don't find, uh, an archaeobotanist will often not find, uh, they, they won't find flour. You don't necessarily, unless they're burned, you don't find charred seed remains of cereals because often people would have their, would have their seeds ground and then they would bring flour home, right? So we have flour or bread in our houses. We don't necessarily have cereal remains. But I had really, really high insect pest remains that were attacking cereals in my samples. So it was kind of interesting because then it made us think about, well, how is this possible? So it really pushed me to think about, well, how did all this material, how, how did these insects possibly arrive in this sample? So we came to a bunch, uh, several different conclusions. And one, which is kind of interesting, is that uh, someone, a, a British archaeoentomologist, has actually experimented about the fact that you can eat uh, cereal weevils, and they will survive and be recognizable after the whole uh, route of your intestinal tract. So that's a possibility. People ate them, and then they passed through their bodies, and then they were found uh, in excrement. What we, but what I think happened uh, in this particular sample is I think they had an infested, uh, they had infested flower in their house, and they threw it out. So what that told us, or the signature that I saw in the insect remains, we didn't actually have any cereals that showed us there was flower there, but there was a spike in cereal pollen and there was a spike in all these insect pests. So that told me, well, you know what? I think they might've gotten a hold of some, some bad flower and found all sorts of creepy crawlies in it. And then I eventually threw it out. So sometimes we can, we can use, we can use this information to tease out very tiny details about the daily lives of people living in, in the past. I, I, that just tickles me in a great way because I just a, a week ago we made we had a baking project and realized that like half our flour was infested with um, with what I always call flour beetles but now I've, I feel very imprecise by using that term. Beetle. <laughs> yes. yes. <laughs> and so we just threw away like you know probably eight pounds of flour. Um, so somewhere in a trash dump in Philadelphia, there's a spike in. <laughs> oh, you should study 
You should have studied that. I did um, I did a, not a similar project, but I also did a, a really, um, we did a project here a few years ago in Quebec City, and we were looking at the King stores. So this is material that was coming in, uh, shipped in from France and from different parts of the colonies here in, in New France, and then would be stored and redistributed distributed around the colonial trade network. And it was interesting because there was a bakery on site that was dating to the, the mid-1700s. And we were able, looking at the insect remains, combined with some of the seed remains, we were able to understand, we think, where the flour was actually and where the seeds, uh, the cereal grains were actually stored before they were milled and used in the bakery. We, you know, there was a general infestation pattern, which I would consider quite normal next to uh, a bakery in the 1750s. But it was really, it was quite interesting because one of the ways beetles give us a great signature, and, you know, if you watch CSI or other shows, you know that, or anything connected to forensic forensic entomology, is that insects arrive in waves. So sometimes we can say, well, not only was the flower infested, but you do have your sort of first wave, your first responders who will come in when the cereal grains are cracked and maybe a little bit moldy and they'll be attracted by by that deposit. Well, then as maybe a a little bit of mold and things like that start to, to really take off, well, then you get another group of insects that come in. So it's kind of nice because we can actually tease right down to, well, how infested was this flower? And we can look at the different waves of insects that, that come in and attack things. And it's exactly the same with, uh, with carcasses that maybe were left on an archaeological site. You'll get insects that like, to attack, uh, that like to attack carrion. And then you'll get other ones that come in because they want to attack the bones and the skin when they're a little bit dried out. I'm curious, have you also been able to date arrivals of exotic species through the the remains? Yeah, well, that's a, that's a great question. That's actually become a, 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 a real side area or, or one of my interest, uh, research areas that interests me a lot. Um, so yes, we can. And what's been really fun about that is we've gotten great response from the entomological community as well. And it's nice so often when people are perhaps revising the fauna or revising you know, the taxonomy of a family, people will contact my lab and say, hey, I'm working on this group. Have you found it in archaeological samples? I think my research laboratory to date, we have provided new introduction dates for 25, uh, 25 or 26 European species to North America. And you get great data, for example. We worked on, uh, I did some research uh, in collaboration with Memorial University of Newfoundland, and we looked at uh, an English colonial site where people were fishing. So boats would arrive and they would have all their stores to come out and, and fish cod for the season, and perhaps a few people would stay and live in the area. And it was very interesting because if we look at the, at the privy contents, we find that there's actually a, a transformation very early on. Uh, we see European species coming in and taking over. And when one particular deposit I looked at, uh, as early as the late 1600s, the beetle fauna was already 50% European in terms of uh, indigenous species here in North America. So the transfer, the transformation was was fast because, um, you know, there are, it, it's also their bias samples. We have to be aware of that because if we're looking at, essentially we created in North America mini little mini Europe's. And so we bring in our our food, our plants, uh, our domesticated animals. So all of those have this fauna that has essentially, that's that's associated with them for thousands of years. So now we create these new niches in North America and the insects just move right in. So we think of, I, I tell my students to think about, about the colonial period as a series of floating hotels for insects that were crossing the Atlantic 
to establish here in North America. Um, I did my doctoral research on uh, the latter half of the 19th century, so pretty recent in, in here in Quebec City. And when we looked at a big privy kind of garbage dump in an urban setting, the beetle fauna by the late 19th century at that context or in that context was 85% European. So we're creating these phenomenal European niches in, in during settlement and colonization here. Once we started realizing we've got all this interesting colonization data, we thought, well, okay, now we need to go and try and find, try and find places where we can take samples that just predate colonization. So we've got some new research coming out on that. And it's, it's fun because we worked with some of my geography colleagues here who work in paleoecology. So we've, on one particular site, we've got about a reconstruction that spans about 2000 years. So we can see its transformation from kind of a, a, a sandy river area with, you know, uh, cedar stumps, and it was a little bit swampy. And then as soon as Europeans start showing up, we see slight traces of, uh, of you know, European species. We see species that tell us, okay, the landscape's been cleared. They went in, cut down all the trees, very common during colonization. Then within another 50 years, there's definitely a distinct European signature as Europeans are now living at the site. So we're really starting, we do see that, and now we're starting to specifically try and sample for that so we can really see the before, during, and after. My research is primarily in Labrador, so it's quite interesting because we're looking at uh, sites that are um, today, they're, they're Inuit peoples, it's, it's their sites. And we were also in another collaboration with another university. We've been looking at some samples that are right around the time of European contact, but we don't think any Europeans were actually at their site, but we're starting to see European beetles pop up within houses. So that's really interesting for us because we're getting, uh, we're getting a sig an entomological signature that's related to indirect contact. So, so goods are circulating through a European network. European foods are clearly circulating around, even if the Europeans aren't making their way to these, uh, to these different sites. So that's kind of interesting because when we think about uh, contact with Europeans, there's, um, I think, I think the next generation of researchers is, is trying to do away with some of these stereotypes about, about, well, what was their interaction, say, with, with metals and with new products that were coming into the network? Well, we often don't think about food, but sometimes botanical and entomological remains are also showing us how, you know, food was circulating around as well. So we do find, uh, we are seeing this contact and this different fauna pop up on First Nation sites as well. You're back. Okay. Well, that's cool. <coughs> I checked it before that we started. I have, uh, after wasting all of those flower beetles that I should have, uh, that I should have kept and, and brought to Ken for identification, I've put a little jar of flour open in our cat in our pantry, and I'm waiting for it to get colonized by something, and then we can see what kind of flower beetles mm -hmm. I've got in my kitchen. I assume they're lurking in some crack in the pantry with a few grains of flour, waiting to to hit the mother load again. Well, you know the the rule: if you want to be sure that you will not see a butterfly, go out with a butterfly net. Yeah. <laughs> did you, did you actually see the beetles? Yeah. Oh, okay. It wasn't just the larvae. It looks like there were pupae or larvae like around the rim, but then the little black, little dark colored, like smaller than a grain of rice, like like really little itty bitty beetles that like, crawl through the flower. Clearly, clearly, we're beetles. I remember when we first met. Um, we were looking, I thought of gardens this way as little floating hotels, as you put it. We were looking under a log and we found roly polies or pill bugs, which mm -hmm. are European is isopods. And then crustaceans. Crustaceans. We found the, uh, what's the name of this 
What's the spider that hunts them again? Oh, the Sowbug Hunter or Dystera Crocata. So give a quick description. What does that look like? The Sowbug Hunter um, is a copper-colored large spider with huge fangs. And uh, it uh, specializes on eating sowbugs or pillbugs. And they are all, both the pillbugs and the spiders are introduced from Europe. You know, one reason we don't have native sow bugs here is that the glaciation wiped them out. There's questions of how come so many species are imported from Europe to here, but less the other way. And that's because they didn't have the glaciation that we had. Hmm. Um, so that there are more opportunities to fill a vacuum yeah. here than the other way around. Can you talk about how you used how you used historical literature sources, historical oh, records yeah. to sort of track the appearance of species in Philadelphia? Oh, well, that's a great question because it's uh, turns out it's it's uh, requires a fair amount of work to do that, <laughs> and that's because I'll give you an example. Yeah, the yellow, black and yellow mud dauber. It's a wasp. The wasp. Yeah. It's one of our most common ones. And it was first described by John Bartram. But when John Bartram described it, it had no name. And John Bartram wasn't in the business, like most scientists after him, of getting of immortality. So I'll name this spider, I'll name this thing, and then people will forever use my name, and then I'll be the author. And <laughs> uh, So he never named it. And... As a result, you won't find his paper indexed under the name of the wasp. And so the way I found out about this is through the grapevine. Joel Fry called my attention to it. I had been doing research on this wasp. That original description of the wasp never crossed my mind. So the, the problem of tracking these things is that when you start going way back, the names that exist may not be the ones that we have. Uh, you get into problems of synonymy. And even if the names are the same, maybe they misidentified it back then. Uh, so it becomes a very uh, complicated effort to track these plants and animals over hundreds of years, yeah. even though we have all these records. So where did the, where did the daubers come from? They're native. Oh, they are? Okay. But what's fascinating about them is that our cities provide just the perfect habitat for them. So there are these Indian settlements that are prehistoric where the mud dauber nests have been found okay. you know, in, in rema archaeological remains. So they've been living with human beings before Europeans even arrived. What did they eat? What did their larvae eat? Exclusively spiders. Okay. They're specialized on spiders. Now, the adults, they go to pollen. They go to flowers. Yeah. But the boss and catcher capture spiders and bring them to their nests and stash the spiders in their nests. So their larvae subsist exclusively on spiders. So the the question of sort of the of old historic records and inferred histories of urban critters in old cities. 
got me thinking, got us thinking about the other direction. Or actually, we were also sitting around and realizing how we got stories for every continent. And then Tony said, what about Antarctica? And I said, okay, sounds like a challenge. And we don't really have cities in, in Antarctica. We have research stations. Um, some of them hold, you know, thousand, couple thousand people, actually. I started by finding a blog discussing some small spiders and, and flies living in the McMurdo Research Station that the United States operates in Antarctica. But um, when I got a hold of the National Science Foundation's public relations guy, he was very nice, but um, said that they had eradicated them, and so there was that there was really nothing more to comment about it. You know, I took that. Okay, fine. Um, and so then I found a guy who works with the British Antarctic Research Stations. Um, we're going to listen to him now telling us a little bit about what comes along with people even to the newest places that we have settled. Yeah, I'm Dr. Kevin Hughes from the British Antarctic Survey and I work in the Environment Office. And what we do is we try to make sure that all of our activities in Antarctica conform with the environmental protocol, which uh, is agreed by all the treaty parties uh, on how we should look after Antarctica. The thing about Antarctica is, is it's actually got a lots of different sorts of Antarctic research stations because of the different environmental uh, situations that you might want to build your station in. For example, you've got stations at the South Pole, which are on this massive ice, ice sheet, which is, you know, about, you know, three or four kilometers thick. And, and these stations are absolutely freezing cold and really, really barren and, and isolated. And yet you've got other research stations, which are, say, on the Antarctic Peninsula, which are much uh, less severe in terms of their climate and uh, it might just look like a bit of a, a wooden hut basically if it's a small station or maybe a little bit bigger it might be a series of buildings uh, which lots of people work and live in. We have recently constructed a research station on an ice shelf which is kind of basically a big thick layer of ice floating on the ocean and it looks pretty space age to be honest. Um, it's it's basically standing on stilts above uh, above the ice and gets uh, it, so the wind can can blow the snow underneath it, and uh, it it looks like something from Star Wars, to be honest. It's it's bonkers, yeah. But the place I normally go to is much more conventional, because it's so cold down in Antarctica. Things that we might bring down with us generally aren't able to survive generally, but we do bring things down accidentally with our cargo. Uh, and our fresh foods and things like that. And what we've had in the past is we've found um, some little insects being brought in. And we had one particular example where we used to store our fruit and veg, which got flown in from South America, right beside our alcohol bond, where we kept the drinks for, for the parties we occasionally have. Not every night, every occasionally. And it turned out that one of the, some, of the, some of the beer cans got cracked open and spilt this kind of sugary sweet beer all over the, the cardboard. And the flies that have been brought in with the fresh food thought, oh, that looks nice. We're going we're gonna to see if we can colonize that. So they basically were, were living in this sort of sugary soaked uh, cardboard and managed to reproduce and live there for a little while. Um, they were black fungus midge. They were Lycoriella uh, species. So uh, we, were, we were able to um, clean up the, the alcohol bond and, and clear out the cardboard and uh, get rid of the flies. And it was a reasonably straightforward job. But it kind of made us think about what kind of practices we had and how we were, what our quarantine situation was for taking stuff down to Antarctica. And that's kind of spurred a lot of, of subsequent work that we've been doing. This whole issue of um, non-native or invasive species coming to Antarctica has really 
caught people's imagination and, and come to their attention in the last kind of five to ten years. And what we're finding is that all the parties who work in Antarctica have come together to try and agree different protocols to try and stop uh, non-native organisms getting in. So that'll be things like making sure your cargo is clean, it doesn't have soil, doesn't have um, insects inside it, making sure people clean their clothing really carefully before they go to Antarctica, make sure there's no sod or, or anything on their boots. Um, we recently did a study in it and it showed that your average person traveling to Antarctica has got, got between nine and ten seeds um, on their clothing. So, you know, the, these sort of facts make us kind of sit up and go, hey, we really need to do something about this. The difficulty is whenever some of these um, species are able to um, escape and get outside and, and actually survive in the Antarctic environment. Now, we used to think that, oh, it's far too cold. Nothing's going to be able to survive there. It's not a problem. But actually what we're finding now is that some things are able to survive. And there was a recent um, case of we've, uh, a fly, it's a Trichosera species, it was found in the sewage treatment plant, colonized the sewage treatment plant in a, and some stations on the north of the Antarctic Peninsula. The people tried to eradicate them and they thought they'd done a good job and they'd got rid of them. Um, but then we find that this same fly, once we'd identified where it had come from, it came from the north of, uh, of Europe and from, sort of from just south of the Arctic and actually was able to survive in really cold conditions. So what we think is that it might have been able to colonize outside as well as just in the sewage treatment plant. And what's happened is it's recolonizing the sewage treatment plant. We just can't get rid of it now. We, we do have on, on some research stations, not on, not on the British ones, but on some of them, you do have um, hydroponic facilities where you basically can grow fresh fruit and vegetables, salad stuff, that kind of thing, um, using artificial light and um, basically the sort of water with nutrients in it. Um, and in the, in the past, there have been times whenever these have been colonized by flies and other sort of beetles and these sorts of things that can come in with fresh fruit and vegetables and cargo. And as a result, these have had to be kind of completely cleared out and sterilized and all the, all the plants have had to be uh, incinerated. So, you know, it's, it's an ongoing uh, issue, but I think there's some pretty good um, protocols in place to try and deal with them. Probably no one intended to bring flower beetles to the Americas, but unwittingly bought all these kinds of things. And here with Antarctica... It's, it's almost impossible not to bring things with us when we're really trying hard not to. Tony, how many seeds do you think you got on you? And he's, you know, all the ones that cling to, to like beggar's ticks or whatever, whatever, whatever like, like that yeah. cling to your clothing. Like my jacket will have like 150. All right, guys. We're going to draw to a close. So I want to thank Ken for coming on the show. This will not be the last we hear of Ken uh-huh. the Urban Wildlife Podcast. Yeah, we'll basically be. We don't want to like sound weird, but Billy and I kind of think you're about coolest person can be. Considering like <laughs> we do this podcast and you made a book, like this book is massive too. It's not it's not like a pamphlet. This is a tome, you know. And we really uh, oh, thank you. We think you're really we think you're really cool. I'd really <laughs> love to have, hang out with you a lot more. Whatever kind of podcasting software you're using, whether it's Stitcher. Whether you find us on SoundCloud, whether you find us on iTunes, please drop us a comment, rate us, tell your friends about it. Follow us on Twitter at HerbWildlifeCast. Find us on Facebook. Email us at UrbanWildlifeCast at gmail.com. We are asking everybody who listens, because um, if you're listening to this, you're probably an urban nature enthusiast. You're probably an urban birder, an urban herper, urban 
butterfly person, what have you. And if you're out in your city, and we know we got listeners all across North America, we got listeners in South America, in, in even in China, um, in Australia, you know, if you're looking at something neat that's in your backyard or behind your office or in the park that you go for walks in, um, in your neighborhood, take out your smartphone and record a note. Um, and you can email that to us or, or hit us up and we can find a way to transfer the file. Um, or you can give us a call on 267-603-3219. Again, 267-603-3219. Um, and you can leave us a voicemail and we'll look at including that in the podcast. You know, if you've got a research study you want to talk to us about, let us know. But if you're just someone who's more like me, who's not a professional, but loves observing uh, plants and animals and nature around where you live, you can be part of this too. We want to hear from you. Next episode, we'll be back to large mammals again. We've done a few episodes on smaller critters. We've done uh, corals and starlings and sparrows. And in this episode, insects of various types. Next episode, we're going from charismatic microfauna to charismatic megafauna with... Well, I guess we just did charismatic macrofauna. Charismatic macrofauna, that's true. Not microfauna. Charismatic macroinvertebrate fauna. Indeed. <laughs> yes. What are we doing next episode? Urban Caracal Project. And we got that. We got um, a brief interview with an urban wild boar researcher from Barcelona. 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 No, I refuse. I learned Spanish in South America. I refuse to pronounce it that way. You know, an animal that we think of being hunted by medieval knights with boar spears and stuff, but but now lives in uh, the outskirts of Barcelona and sometimes gets into Barcelona um, and the problems that causes. Uh, so we're looking forward to that. Thanks a lot for listening. Enjoy yourselves. My name's Andrew Hoffman. I'm currently working part-time as an interpretive naturalist at Dobbs Park and Turkey Run State Park in western Indiana. But I've been spending a lot of my free time lately searching for spiders. And today we're going to go on a little spider hunt around my apartment complex here in eastern Terre Haute, Indiana. And this is a pretty well-kept apartment complex. Our apartment's pretty clean. But despite that, the spiders have found a way to live in and around us, right under our noses, almost never being seen. I'm going to head straight for the most productive area, which is our side porch here. So here, as I open the door, head out and search the corners and the cracks. Now as I look around, I real quickly begin seeing their webs. But you don't real quickly see the spiders. So, you have to kind of look in the nooks and the crannies. But here, pretty quickly, I've been able to find one right next to the sliding door. You know, each sliding door has the little grooves that they fit into. And in this groove, there is a nice big spider. This spider has long legs and kind of a teardrop-shaped abdomen with some real pretty tan and brown colors on it. It's a house spider, and there's a number of spiders that go by that name, house spider or common house spider. But in North America, spiders in the genus Parastiatoda are probably the most commonly referred to as house spiders. And here we have a house spider guarding her egg sac. This house spider is in the group of spiders often called cobweb spiders because of that loose, kind of messy web that we see in the corners of our home and the corners of buildings that we call a cobweb. And she has her eggs sheltered in this groove of the sliding door, and she's guarding them. And she'll stay with those eggs, oftentimes until they hatch. Now, I'm looking around to see if I can spot any different kinds of spiders, and here in the upper corner 
of the porch. Let me move this chair here so I can get up to it. Is a very different spider web. It's basically a sheet of a web, and at the very corner where it goes towards the edge of the web, back into the corner, there's a funnel. That funnel leads into the little crack in the crevice behind some of these panel boards on the side of the porch. And though I can't see it, except for maybe a couple of legs sticking out there, I know the spider that lives in that funnel. I know what it is. Mostly because I see them a lot when they're active earlier in the year, but also because this web is very distinctive to a group of spiders called the grass spiders. Sometimes referred to as funnel spiders or funnel web spiders. But the genus is Agelinopsis. They have kind of long legs, sort of a, a furry body, at least a short-haired body. They're generally a brown color, some gray, different markings on them, but they're very quick. They'll come out of that little funnel whenever they sense vibrations on the web. They'll come out, they'll charge, and they'll grab the prey. Now, it's no coincidence that these house spiders, because I'm seeing more now, and these funnel web or grass spiders have set up shop on this porch. And all of these spiders building their webs on the porch are here because of the porch light. This porch light, every night of the summer, draws in a lot of insects. And the spiders will build their webs around the outside of the porch, but also right next to the light. And this is essentially like setting up a little buffet line. So as I look around a little bit more, I'm going to move this chair again. Over to this corner, I see legs sticking out from a very different kind of spider. Now this spider has kind of a weird shape to it. It's sort of a flattened, round body and it's got these very long front legs that come out and kind of curl around, well, sort of like a crab. And in fact, that's their name, crab spider. And so I'm not sure which species this is, but these crab spiders are generally ambush predators. So I think it's time to go back inside and see what we can find there. And actually, as I just closed this door, I can already see a nice little cobweb up in the corner, probably from a house spider, on the between area, between where the sliding door and the screen door is. Now the first place, if I'm looking for spiders in my home, the first place I want to look is the least frequented part of the house, the darkest, the most sheltered place, the place where we don't move things very often. And since we don't have a cellar or an attic here that's easily searched, the best option is going to be back here behind the dryer, behind the washer. There are a lot of little sheltered areas that don't see much use. Up in the corners there's not much web, but as I get up here towards the back corner of the room, up here where one of our vents is, I can see a little space that we never reach, that there's nothing up there, and it's full of loose webbing. And it's well out of reach, but I can already see a little spider up in that corner sitting in that real flimsy loose webbing. It's kind of a cobweb, but not quite as thick as that house spider's cobweb. These are the strands of webbing that belong to the long-bodied cellar spider, spider in the genus Fulcus. And these spiders have very, very long legs. They do have a long body, but compared to the size of their legs, their body's nothing. They have a small body and very, very long, spindly legs. And really, there's no other spider like them around here in your home that you're likely to run into. So if you see an extremely long-bodied spider, kind of a light color, not much pattern to it, you're probably looking at one of these cellar spiders. How about we head to the part of the house where most people probably would least like to see spiders, and yet spiders still manage to eke out an existence, like I said, right under our noses. 
or in this case right above our heads because I'm now in the kitchen up under this cabinet I see a couple little strands of webbing and a little egg sac now unlike the teardrop shape of that house spider egg sac I saw outside this one's perfectly round it's nearly see-through and it's kind of got a starry appearance to it it almost looks sparkly when you look at it it's got little tiny eggs in it and this egg sac probably belongs to the triangulate cobweb spider which is actually a relative of the house spider we looked at earlier searching for and photographing spiders is, is a hobby for me right now but I think it's important that people get to know these animals that live around them and that are really important for maintaining a, a balance in a very unnatural ecosystem Dr. Bain? Allison Bain? Yeah. These are great weevils. <laughs> and they saw a trigger. You merely adopted great. Adopted wheat. I was born in it. Molded by it. Right. How many times have you seen that movie? A couple. <laughs>